You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 7th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, the trial begins of four dozen leading campaigners in Hong Kong. We'll ask if this marks the beginning of a trial of the city's pro-democracy movement itself. But the law has clearly defined the four types of acts and activities which we need to prevent and curb and punish in accordance with the law. Also ahead, we head to a corner of Estonia caught in a geopolitical trap. Because of its Russian identity, many Estonians have historically looked down on Narva. Such attitudes had started to change until Moscow's invasion of Ukraine opened old wounds. And we'll ask why the EU is trying to stop the US from taking all its green investment. Plus a look at the television and papers as well. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, to look at what else is happening in today's news. A massive rescue operation has been ongoing overnight in Turkey and Syria. The number of people to have died in yesterday's earthquakes has now passed 4,300. The governor of the Luhansk region in eastern Ukraine is claiming that Russia is pouring military reinforcements into his area ahead of a potential fresh offensive by Moscow. And the Times of London is reporting that the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is expected to announce a reshuffle of his cabinet a week after he sacked the Conservative Party chair Nadim Zahawi over his tax affairs. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the largest security trial in Hong Kong's history began yesterday. Today, 47 defendants, some of the city's highest profile democracy activists, are accused of conspiracy to commit subversion over the holding of unofficial pre-election primaries in July 2020. Well, I'm joined from Hong Kong by Selena Cheng, who's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. A very warm welcome, Selena. Good to have you with us. Hi, Emma. So just explain to us, there's a very high profile group of people on trial here. Who are they? Uh, There are 47 people in total. They were former lawmakers, politicians, um, LGBT activists, unionists in Hong Kong. And all of them have been in custody for more than two years. And just now they're starting to have their trial under the security law. What are they accused of exactly? They're accused of being in a conspiracy to subvert state power. What does that mean? Uh, That was in connection with a primaries election that was held in 2020, July, among the pro-democracy camps. So different political parties and groups that were pro-democracy at the time grouped together so that they could produce a unified platform of candidates. And with those candidates, they can then join the legislative election several months later, back uh, in 2020, in the hopes of winning a majority in the uh, legislative chamber in Hong Kong. And why are the Hong Kong authorities believing that that is a crime? Uh, Because when these uh, pro-democracy politicians and figures were uh, campaigning for the public to vote in the primary election, uh, their demands was that they would win a majority in the 
uh, legislative chamber, and then they would veto the government budget in a way that would cause the government to come to a standstill, and in the hopes that they would force the leader at the time to dissolve the uh, legislature and resign. And that's part of a strategy to push for greater democracy in Hong Kong, uh, according to these activists. Tell us a little bit more about um, the the reason why this this trial is being held now. This is all to do with the, the, the new security law, isn't it? Yes. So the security law came into effect some two weeks before the primaries election took place. And still hundreds of thousands of uh, ordinary people in Hong Kong voted in those elections. It was a big day in, in the city at the time. And uh, about half a year later, they were arrested and then uh, taken into custody. So a lot of these people have not been given bail. That's a, a default under the national security law. And only around a dozen of them were able to come out on bail. So after two years, and it's a massive case because of the number of defendants in the same case, uh, there were a lot of delays and changes and and paperwork and endless hearings during these two years. And the trial is only starting now because of that. Now, you were in the trial. You were at the trial uh, on Monday. What was it like? Uh, There were the 16 defendants who pleaded not guilty, appeared in the trial. Um, there were a couple more who, who've already pled guilty um, during this long period of detention. Uh, some of them also appeared in the court to uh, hear the proceedings. Uh, the trial was quite packed because of the number of solicitors and barristers. In, in the courtroom, there were three judges who were handpicked um, by the city's leader to sit on national security cases. Um, among the members of the public, uh, there were hundreds of people queuing up outside the courtroom, even the night before, just to get in. Um, so, uh, so that's the scene that we saw yesterday. Um, it is being suggested that this is this trial is not just a trial of forty-seven democracy activists, but it is being seen as a trial of the pro-democracy movement itself. Would you Would you agree with that? Um, so that's what a lot of analysts, um, especially legal and political analysts observing Hong Kong, would say, uh, because that's uh, a trial that's rounded up many of the city's top pro-democracy figures. And that's for this reason that it's seen as a trial of the city's uh, pro-democracy movement, if if there could still be considered one. And uh, that's that's what critics say, yes. Um, I mean, you're just saying, you know, if there still is one, is there indeed a pro-democracy movement left in Hong Kong? Uh, it's an interesting question. Um, pro-democracy demands were very strong in the city two years ago, but since the national security law came down, a lot of that has been mopped out. And uh, many pro-democracy campaigners and activists fled overseas or were in jail or they decided not to pursue this course anymore. So I'd say the movement in Hong Kong has been vastly reduced. And as a result, um, how has that affected daily life in Hong Kong? Um, two years ago, if people were living in Hong Kong, they would see a lot of protests. Uh, the city had a quite a vibrant um, civil you know, grassroots movement. Uh, there were a lot of NGOs and activist groups, big and small, for all kinds of issues. And I'd say these days, you definitely see a lot less of uh, various types of campaigning movements, uh, not just for political demands, but for 
other sorts of issues, even if it's talking about working uh, working conditions for labor and uh, LGBT groups or environmental groups. Um, we haven't had any uh, large-scale marches or demonstrations in the city for two years, uh, largely because of the national security law, but also because of COVID, where the government used COVID as an excuse to ban uh, to ban these public gatherings. Tell us, finally, these 47 on trial, there is a likelihood of conviction for them. What, is, what will happen to them? Uh, there is a likelihood of conviction um, for the 16 who have pled not guilty. The remaining 31 who already have pled guilty will, will, will have a guilty charge for sure. Um, under the national security law, there are minimum sentences for different categories of offences. Uh, whether they're considered severe, medium, or, or or less severe, like for people who were not uh, uh, key organizers. So it remains unclear uh, which individuals were categorized in which way, uh, which bracket they fall into. Um, some of the more serious ones uh, could face life imprisonment, and some of them could get away with maybe a, f- a few years of uh, sentences. Um, in any case, most of them have served two years in custody and that will be taken as part of their sentence as well. Selina Cheng, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Hong Kong. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. Just nudging 7.10am here in London, 2.10am in Washington, D.C. And is the United States just about to steal the EU's lunch when it comes to green investment? A delegation from Brussels heads to Washington later this week, worried that the talent in green tech will migrate stateside. The German economy minister, Robert Habeck, expressed optimism before he left yesterday that a potential trade dispute with Washington can be resolved. Suzanne Lynch is a chief Brussels correspondent for Politico. She joins me once again on Monocle 24. Very good morning to you, Suzanne. Good morning, Emma. So just explain to us, this is all to do with a piece of legislation called the US Inflation Reduction Act. What is that exactly? Yes, the IRA, as it's known, um, was a huge piece of legislation that President Biden uh, got through Congress last year. And it must be said, a lot of people didn't think he would. It was uh, a lot of money, a sprawling uh, act. Uh, it, it, is a three, it includes $370 billion worth of green subsidies. And the idea is that that is trying to um, help America's transition to a green economy by encouraging companies to invest in green technology. So in one way, you could see it as something that the Biden administration was introducing something very progressive, that is a way of harnessing business uh, to the climate agenda and was very welcomed by kind of all sides of the political aisle. But on the other side, what happened was that in Brussels, uh, the European Commission and, and European countries were very annoyed when they saw the detail of this plan because they feel it's very protectionist it gives subsidies effectively and gives tax breaks um, to, to American I- industry um, and tries to encourage other industries and businesses to relocate to America. I mean, there was talk here of bringing the US to the WTO, for example, the World Trade Organization. 
so uh, there was a lot of annoyance at the fact that this bill was got through and um, that it was protectionist in nature. And since then, so since last autumn, really, we've seen growing efforts by the EU to try and respond to this uh, in some way. It's a tricky situation, isn't it? Because it, the US is perfectly within its rights here. I mean, one, one of the major targets is the production of electric vehicles at the moment. Europe makes more than a quarter of electric vehicles that, that we're that we're enjoying. Um, the US produces just ten percent, but this new um, legislation means that if you want the subsidy and you're an electric vehicle manufacturer in the United States, you have to make sure that what forty percent of of the of the critical parts of the batteries that go into electric vehicles have to come from the United States. Yeah, and that also includes uh, Mexico and Canada. So this is exactly what the Europeans are annoyed about. They're saying that that disadvantages its own businesses, that, you know, we're in a free trading world. The US commissions that you have a lot of European uh, companies, car companies working in America and vice versa. So this is what they're trying to get changes to, that the EU or Europe would be treated in the same way for those purposes on electric vehicles as, say, Canada and Mexico, who are not in the US either. Um, So... But the problem for them is, you know, it's a bit little too too late. You know, it's gone through Congress. Uh, there are going to be derogations that you can maybe fiddle around with this slightly uh, around the edges, which they're trying to uh, lobby, basically, until March on this. Now, the Americans are saying that, number one, A, that no one really lobbied on this on them, and, and the Europeans have been urging America to be better on climate change initiatives for years, and now they're doing it, and the Europeans are getting annoyed. And B, that a part of this is about combating China, the rise of China and dependency on China, uh, and that the Europeans should welcome that. Um, so I think what it's limited what the Europeans will get in terms of changes, but what they are trying to do now in Brussels, and this is going to be a focus of an EU summit this week, is to come up with their own kind of package to counter this. Uh, so uh, EU leaders are meeting here on Thursday, all 27, and this is going to be their first big discussion on this issue. And you've got a, a split very, this is quite broad, uh, brushed what I'm going to explain, but it, a, a shift, a split between the more the countries who are very free trade minded and don't like the idea of any subsidies or anything like that, um, and other countries who do believe that you want to plough money into the European economy if needed. And in particular, they're suggesting the Commission of relaxing state aid rules. So some countries would be allowed to subsidise their own industries. But there are a lot of fears in in Europe, that that would just mean France and Germany, country bigger countries would have the money to pump into their own industries and other poorer countries, even countries like Italy, don't have the resources for that. So this would fragment and split the EU single market. So it's quite technical, but it's very, uh, very important for the EU as it tries to compete uh, as, a, as a serious industrial power globally. This is an interesting point, isn't it? Because once again, we find the structure of the European Union being tested. We see it being tested all the time, from monetary policy to military policy, and now the internal climate policy as well, and industry is is being pulled pulled apart. There is a sense, is there, that the EU can get through this, or are we looking again at the possibility of deeper problems? Um, no, I think that they will, they will get through this. I mean, that's the nature of the EU. It's a unique unique structure of twenty seven countries. There's nothing else really like it in terms of its uh, power. Uh, so every part of leg- every legislation you have, every proposal you have, you're going to have different views. And the task is to try and land somewhere in between to get everyone on board. And that's what they're going to try to do on Thursday. Um, and I think what they're going to do is try and reassure sceptical countries that, yes, we may allow a relaxation of state aid rules. But number one is it will be temporary. There'll be a time frame on it. 
And number two, only certain investments, certain industries, certain businesses would be uh, liable for that, would, would, would fall under this. So I think it's going to be quite technical, reassuring this, these sceptical countries, getting them to come on board by saying, you know, there'll be checks and balances, it's limited, and we have to do something, those kind of things. Uh, but I do think there's been a broader uh, soul-searching in the EU, like many countries, about during the COVID pandemic, a lot of modern economies realized that they weren't self-sufficient in a lot of things, like semiconductors and all the problems with supply chains uh, that were revealed during the pandemic. They're now trying to uh, strengthen their own industrial base and make sure you've got these different industries that are working at full tilt. And so it's, it's, it's a very interesting moment globally because I think there's a bit more of a turning in and move towards protectionism rather than free trade. That's what's going on here on the broader a level, and I think it's been driven first and foremost most by the United States, which is an interesting position to find yourself in. When, as you mentioned a moment ago, the the general feeling is that everybody needs to make sure that they are shored up against China, so it doesn't mm. help for the US and the EU to be, be involved in a in a trade dispute. Yes, absolutely. That's that's exactly another element of this. So this visit this week by uh, the German and French ministers, which again, the optics of that are quietly annoying some people in Brussels because they feel it, it, it illustrates the fact that it's Germany and France pushing this. Um, they're visiting Washington. They're having meetings with the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, the Economy Secretary, Gina Raimondo, the Trade Secretary, Catherine Tai, And they're going to be putting out their perspective on this. Again, as I said, very... Very difficult to know how much they can get from these meetings, but they're they're going to be looking as well for more transparency from the US about what businesses are getting um, subsidies. And also there were reports, but not not particularly specific examples of maybe US states. A lot of governors of states, for example, were at the World Economic Forum in Davos, that they're trying to kind of poach European businesses and, and encourage them to come over to America and invest. So uh, that's what they're going to be saying uh, this week in Washington. Now, in one sense, they, their time isn't great. The State of the Union address is tonight by Joe Biden. Um, we'll be listening to see if he touts this plan. This is a really big legislative achievement for him. Uh, lots of money. So they're quite proud of this. But just this mismatch between what the EU thought this was going to be in this bill and what was in it has uh, infuriated many in Brussels. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned the World Economic Forum and it was in Switzerland at Davos that Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, was trying to outline just how the EU planned to make sure that green industries would uh, thrive and indeed stay in the EU in the next few years. I mean, she was talking about things like cutting red tape and loosening state aid rules. I mean, you talked about the division within the EU in terms of subsidies and, and, uh, and you know, free market e economists. Um, how much do you think that what Ursula von der Leyen in, uh, said in Davos will actually reassure those countries that there is a robust enough policy to withstand any uh, fresh incentives by the United States? I think there will be in that they've already announced plans around state aid that, you know, countries will be able to give help to their own industries. But I think the really next debate will be whether they need any new borrowing of the EU. So there's talk of a sovereignty fund that would help countries that don't have the deep pockets to help their industries, um, that they could dip into an EU-wide fund uh, to help investment in the green tech sector. But that's very controversial because countries, actually Germany and other countries like the Netherlands, um, have traditionally been very sceptical of, of creating new EU money, you know, that a joint fund. Uh, so you've got some countries saying, oh, hang on, there's so, there's some money kind of floating around since the COVID pandemic. There was a huge RRF fund and not all of that was used yet. So let's get money from that first. 
they're reluctant to start up a whole new EU fund on this. So that's kind of the next debate. Uh, at the moment, it's going to be about what we can do within the existing framework. But I think there's going to be another big debate about whether new EU funding is needed for this, that the EU does need this in order to compete successfully. Suzanne Lynch, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come in the programme, we'll be heading to a corner of Estonia, Estonia caught in a geopolitical trap. Because of its Russian identity, many Estonians have historically looked down on Narva. Such attitudes had started to change until Moscow's invasion of Ukraine opened old wounds. We'll be hearing more from Petri Petsov a little bit later on The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's 8.20 in Paris, 7.20 here in London. Now, when Russia invaded Ukraine almost a year ago, Ukrainian men between the ages of 18 and 60 were banned from leaving the country. They had to stay to fight. Millions of women and children left. But many women chose to remain, joining the military and taking up arms themselves. Well, to find out more about what has happened and the effect of so many women joining the military in Ukraine, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Anna Kvit, a Ukrainian sociologist, currently a visiting research scholar at University College here in London. A very warm welcome to the programme, Anna. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Now, Ukrainian women have been allowed, what, full combat roles since 2016. So what state was the Ukrainian military with its relationship, uh, insofar as its, you know, its relationship with women? What, what was it like before Russia invaded last year? Well, uh, we should start with the fact that um, the, this uh, before it was an armed, it was recognized as an armed conflict. But the, in fact, the war started in 2014 and women started joining more actively armed forces of Ukraine since 2014. There were women in the armed forces of Ukraine before that. But uh, since 2014, number of women in the armed forces has more than doubled. And since 2016, um, combat positions uh, were gradually opening for women in the armed forces of Ukraine. And uh, last year, they were completely um, open, all of them, for women. So this was a quite a progressive stance being taken by Ukraine. Yes, yes, absolutely. Ukrainian um, government and armed forces are um, responding to the current challenges caused by the war and uh, also they respond to the uh, demand for more uh, gender equality in the armed forces because um, the um, request, let's say, uh, for um, integration of women into the armed forces was um, was coming also from the women in the military, uh, military and from civil society as well. So tell us a little bit more about how the situation has evolved since the Russian invasion. I mean, what? how many women are we talking about who are not just taking active combat roles, but who've now joined the Ukrainian military to, to fight and, you know, to, to help with the effort against Russia? Yes, yeah, so uh, as of the uh, latest uh, data available, it's from summer 2022, uh, there are approximately 50,000 of women in the Ukrainian armed forces, and uh, 38,000 of them are 
women on military service and the rest of them are civilian women. It's a, uh, and approximately 5,000 are fighting on the front line, were fighting on the front line. We don't know what is the exact number now. And it's a pretty, it's, it's a very big number. Um, and it's a, um, many women, many women has joined armed forces of Ukraine since February 24. Tell us a little bit more about how the presence of a woman in the inner combat zone um, alters the way that the war is fought, given the fact that um, one of the dreadful consequences of this is that women are being taken as prisoners of war by the Russians, just in the same way as men are, but women try to evade capture at all costs by the Russians for fear of what might happen to them once they are in Russian hands. Um, a Yes, so uh, being a woman in the armed forces in this war, um, in the armed forces of Ukraine, is uh, um, associated with extreme risks uh, for life and for health, definitely. And uh, from from the interviews and from the reports, we can see that the Ukrainians in the Russian captivity are being tortured and humiliated and, and starved and denied an access to healthcare services. So basically the uh, rights provided by Geneva Convention are brutally violated and women who come, came back from, who were released from the captivity, um, they said that they were stripped naked, uh, which is an... Um, a type of conflict-related sexual violence. They were threatened that they can be raped. They witnessed other people being sexually um, assaulted. So uh, for women, uh, captivity is associated with um, additional risks related to sexual violence. Tell us a little bit more about the wider cultural change that this might suggest as, as what is happening in Ukraine. When you when you have so many women who are taking part in active combat roles, um, what do you think might happen once the war is over and the women come back from the front line? In the past, in the, in the Second World War, there was often a sense that women who had been active militarily or who had gone to help with the war effort were often told, don't talk about this, go back to where you are. There was a sort of a, a conscious effort to um, almost put women back um, in a place yeah. that they couldn't go back to. I mean, mm-hmm. How do you think that's going to change in Ukraine? There is a very big risk of this rollback to traditional gender roles. And um, to some extent, we could see it uh, before 2022 when we were women were coming back from the front lines, and uh, they were expected by their families to come back to taking care of their kids and wearing dresses and be careless and happy, which was not happening. But um, I think um, many has changed since then because more women are. Uh, fighting on the front lines, uh, they are more visible, they are more recognized as military women, which was not the case, for example, in 2014. And definitely it was not the case uh, during the Second World War. So the recognition of women in the uh, armed forces and of women participating uh, in this war is increasing. And also the situation was uh, recognition of women's rights and gender equality as a value and as uh, in Ukraine is uh, changing. So I would really like to hope that women will not be asked to come back to their traditional gender roles, but 
this risk uh, does exist. How do you try and reduce that risk, Anna? How do you try and make sure that the women who come back from the military um, are able to continue in a, in a new direction? Well, um, one of the um, approaches is to introduce uh, changes at the policy level. So now we have more uh, rights for women in the armed forces of Ukraine, and it has been reflected at the level of laws. These are new laws, but these are not like decrees. It's it's the law uh, that says that allows women, uh, that provides women certain rights in the armed forces. And also, um, when we talk about the rules, it's important to talk about informal rules. So um, men are getting, men and women are getting used to having women in the armed forces of Ukraine. It's not entirely new situation for them. So they see that it can work. And I hope that uh, they will see, they, they will still think that it can work after after the war. So it's like uh, raising awareness about gender equality, about women's rights, about women's achievement in the armed forces of Ukraine and uh, changing the laws that would um, enable women to continue their military service even uh, after the end of the war. Anna Kovit, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. The time is 7.30 here in London. A quick summary now of some of the other headlines. The number of people to have died in yesterday's earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has now passed 4,300. A massive rescue operation has been gone going overnight as many more thousands of people are thought to be trapped. Thousands of buildings have been flattened. The governor of a region in eastern Ukraine claims that Russia is pouring military reinforcements into his area. Serhii Haidai, who's Ukraine's governor of the mainly Russian-occupied Luhansk province, said more and more reserves are being deployed in his direction, with more equipment being brought in. It's thought a fresh offensive by Moscow could begin as early as next week. U.S. officials say a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon shot down off the U.S. coast was about 200 feet, that's 60 metres tall, and carried a load the size of an airliner. A U.S. defence official said the size and makeup of the balloon led for it not to be shot down over land. The U.S. is still working to recover debris off the coast of South Carolina. And the Times of London is reporting that the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is expected to announce a reshuffle of his cabinet. The planned changes come roughly a week after Mr Sunak sacked the Conservative Party chair Nadim Zahawi over his tax affairs. And those are the headlines. Now, the EU special representative is making his 10th trip to Kosovo and Serbia in six months in an ongoing effort to smooth relations between the two nations. Telling us more, I'm joined now by Guy Delaunay, Monocle's Balkans correspondent. A very good morning to you, Guy. Good morning, Anna. So just explain to us what is going on here. So Mr. Lychak is in the middle of this great big push, which not just the European Union, but also the United States is making to get Kosovo and Serbia to play nice with each other and, for goodness sake, make some sort of agreement that actually sticks for more than five minutes. I think what they're signalling at the moment is that they're thoroughly fed up with every few months there being this flare-up in relations between Pristina and Belgrade over some things which to outsiders look completely daft, like who could forget the number plate dispute which apparently 
apparently had troops on high alert on the border between Serbia and Kosovo just because there was a row over what kind of number plates ethnic Serbs could use within Kosovo. So that sort of thing has got the EU and the United States thoroughly cheesed off and they've been putting both Pristina and Belgrade under very heavy manners for the past couple of months to sign up to this proposal that they've come up with to end all of these shenanigans in the long term. Just explain to us what this proposal involves. Aha, well, that, if I could tell you that, then I'd have to kill you, etc., etc. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, we're not meant to know what's in there, but we do know what's in there. So the, the key things really are that it means that both sides, and this is, it's pathetically small in a way, if you, if you want, if you just state this baldly, it sounds completely ridiculous. But the agreement, the proposal says that both sides agree to implement everything they've agreed on in previous agreements. Uh, you know, that's the level that we're at here. So that's that's the main thing that they've got to do. But other things that they have to do would include things like Serbia not standing in the way of Kosovo's membership of international organisations. Um, this possibly opens the way for Kosovo to join um, the United Nations, which would be a very big step. But crucially, it doesn't include any obligation for Serbia to recognise Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence, uh, which, of course, is not exactly what Prime Minister Alban Kurti of Kosovo wants to sign up to. No, indeed. And now, let, now let's just talk about the, you know, the, the fact that you, the agreement is it basically involves um, levels of agreement on previous agreements, which is yeah. what you've just described. But how do the Kosovans and the Serbians see this? Yeah, I, do you know what? I think it depends who you talk to. Now, it, you, we, we hear a lot from the very high level about these sort of things, and we tend to see the fringes making their feelings felt. So you'll get, for example, um, Serb nationalists turning out, whether it's in North Mitrovica, which is the largest ethnic Serb population in Kosovo, or in Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, and you'll see them coming out with their flags and banners chanting, Kosovo is Serbia. On the other hand, you had some uh, Albanian nationalists outside Kosovo's uh, National Assembly last week protesting against the idea of Mr. Albin Kurti, the Prime Minister of Kosovo, signing up to this deal, calling that some sort of a betrayal. So you'll see those sort of fringes. When you talk to ordinary people, they're actually just fed up of, the, of this whole affair. If you're a citizen of Kosovo, it's very difficult for you to travel normally around Europe. You don't have visa liberalisation. You're not recognised by five EU member states. Everything's just a lot more difficult than it should be. If you're a citizen of Serbia, this issue with Kosovo is a millstone around your neck of progress. It's bad for the image of the country. It, it's bad for you know, practical matters in terms of what's going to happen in your future and your children's future. So a lot of people do want some sort of long-term resolution that they can live with. It's finding the shape of that that's the tricky bit. Exactly, because we now have, you know, you, you mentioned the fact that everybody living there, going about their daily lives is getting quite fed up about this. And also you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that Brussels and Washington have run out of patience as well. So how how do we bring this to a head, apart from with lots and lots of rep visits from the EU representative? So the EU's been using the stick. It's been telling Pristina and Belgrade that if they don't sign up to this proposal, uh, then they will be not just put on the naughty step, but they'll lose EU funding. 
Um, in Serbia's case, accession talks will be halted. In Kosovo's case, they can kiss goodbye to the idea of visa liberalisation and visa-free visits uh, to the EU. And those sort of things. And, and that, that's, that's, that's an, uh, a new level of threat, I think, from the, the European Union. They tend to cajole and scold, but not to actively threaten. Um, what we've got at the moment is both Washington and Brussels uniting in a moment of concentration where they have decided they've got the bandwidth to do something about this and they've got an opportunity to get something done because there aren't any elections coming up in either Kosovo or Serbia this year uh, or at least there aren't any scheduled so they think that now is a moment to give this a really serious push and come up with something that's going to stick for a while at least. The difficulty is is that you you have organisations, you have bodies, you have authorities, you have governments who all on paper are are willing perhaps to to bring this to some happy conclusion. But how do you make sure that there's a cultural and psychological shift within the two countries to actually find some area of appeasement? Yeah, I I think, as as we've we've said, Emma, that, that when it comes to individuals, when it comes to people... I don't think it's quite as possibly quite maybe I'm too much of an optimist here, but I don't think it's maybe quite as um, uh, complicated as it looks because people in Kosovo are aware that they're stuck. that that uh, the unilateral declaration of independence in 2008 hasn't worked out as they had hoped it would work out, or indeed as successive governments have promised them it would work out. They're still stuck without more or less half the United Nations member states recognising them. And this is problematic in real terms. They're not members of a lot of international organisations. Life is more difficult than it should be. It shouldn't be going on like this. It's not good for anybody. And Serbia, as I say, likewise, you know, this, this issue just hanging around isn't doing any good. So the, the cultural shift in some way has been happening over the past 15 years. There's been a growing sense of acceptance in some quarters of both Kosovo and Serbia that they're not going to get exactly what they want, um, but that that might not be in, in itself be a bad thing. Kai Delorny, as ever, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. Continue with today's newspapers. Joining me on the line from Paris is Agnès Parier, who's journalist and author of Notre Dame, the Soul of France. Good morning, Agnès. How's uh, Paris looking this morning? Oh, brilliant. Very sunny. Excellent. That's wonderful. I haven't. It's still dark here, so we're not entirely sure what what lies in store. But I'm glad to hear that Paris is doing well. Uh, what's happening in your papers? So um, you've heard about the pension reform, a haven't little, you? A, a, just a, just a touch. <laughs> the mother of legislative battles. Well, uh, the text has reached the National Assembly yesterday and the scenes we've seen, you know, uh, very late, actually, 11 p.m. yesterday, um, the far left and the far right proposed a few, a a couple of votes. Um, First, the far left said, well, why don't we vote on rejecting the bill entirely? Well, this didn't pass. Then the far right proposed, uh, proposed another the vote on why don't we submit uh, the uh, the reform uh, to the French people by referendum, 
Well, this didn't pass either. And basically in the next few days, uh, and probably that will include a few uh, nights, the French MPs will have to look at the 16,500 amendments tabled by the opposition. Uh, when I say the opposition, I mean the far right and the far left. So 16,500 amendments. Um, um, so sorry, just, just run that number by us again, please, Agnes. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what my ears properly absorbed that. Well, exactly. So, um, one six five. 16,500 amendments. So when this is the case, obviously it means that the opposition is just doing obstruction, as we call it in French, uh, just trying to make it very, very painful um, and uh, usually to no avail. Uh, because, I mean, in all likelihood, although it's going to be very painful, um, the government, uh, with the help of the centre-right, should be able to uh, to pass that uh, reform, which we we, we need perhaps to remind our listeners, uh, is is a rather modest, at least uh, seen from abroad, a very modest reform. Um, currently, the French retire at the age of 62. Um, in Germany or in the UK, it's about 66. And uh, the reform just uh, wants the, uh, um, uh, the French to retire at the age of 64 by 2030. Um, so, so we'll see what it's it's going to be like. But uh, yesterday, I can tell you that was uh, people were just shouting at each other. And when the uh, work and pension minister tried to to talk, uh, the uh, um, uh, he was interrupted so many times, uh, he was just uh, not audible. So in the end. Uh, Gabriel Attal, who is uh, so, uh, the, the sort of very, very young, uh, very dashing young minister, uh, said, look, uh, we need to pass this reform or we're facing ruin. So a lot of drama uh, to be expected in the next few days. How have, the, how have the papers reacted to this? Because obviously this is where the, the, you know, the reportage of what is going on actually truly bears the soul of the problem. Well, uh, today is the third day of action, uh, that is to say uh, a third day of strike in France, plus protests in the streets. And uh, the trade unions are quite uh, united. Uh, there are eight of them um, representing the public sector. And, you know, we'll see actually that the, the real measure uh, is in the streets, as often in, in France, and we'll, we'll uh, count uh, how many people protested today uh, uh, at the end of the day and we'll see whether um, the mobilization is still very uh, strong or is decreasing and we'll see also how many teachers uh, are striking today and th this will be a clear indication of where you know the debate and where the reform is going. Let's have a look at an article that appeared in Le Parisien at the weekend. It was a, it was a big assessment of Paris and the fact that um, I think more than 120,000 Parisians have, have left the city. What's happening, Agnes? Well, Paris is and, and has always been one of the world's most densely populated cities in the world. It was the case already in medieval times. So it's it's interesting because when you think about it, when you know Paris, then it's obvious. But when you're saying that it's far more densely populated than New York or New Delhi, you think, you know, you're, you're surprised. Um, so when we're talking about Paris, we're not talking about the greater Paris. We're talking really the, the Paris within its 
walls within the peripheric, you know, that uh, round uh, road uh, encircling the city. And uh, yes, it's a trend that started before COVID. That is to say 11 years ago. And Paris has lost 100, as you said, 123,000 people. So today there's barely just above 2 million inhabitants in Paris. And it's it's interesting because, um, you know, Paris still attracts a lot of tourists, a lot of students, of course, uh, great universities there. But uh, a lot of Parisians find uh, living in Paris not as enjoyable um, because apartments are notoriously small. And but they leave. What what is interesting is they, they used to leave after, you know, when they were contemplating having a second child, for instance, they wanted a bigger, a bigger home, uh, especially if uh, they were planning to buy a home because a lot of people are tenants are just renting in Paris. Um, and at the same time, you have other big cities in, in uh, France that have become extremely um, attractive for younger people, for instance, Lyon, Bordeaux, not Marseille, uh, their population has been uh, uh, increasing. And so there's the COVID effect, of course, it has sort of uh, accelerated the process. Uh, but also because of the high speed uh, train network, which is extremely good in France, we, you can have a very flexible working lifestyle, you can actually leave uh, you know, five days uh, a week um, outside of Paris and quite far away. You can live in Marseille and come uh, to work in, in Paris for one or two days a week. So it's a question of flexibility. And I must say, it's, there's another thing. <laughs> Which, what, what is this, Agnes? Uh, there's another thing. I really hate to uh, criticize the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, but under, um, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, in I mean, the current municipality uh, make it quite difficult for Parisians to enjoy Paris life uh, because the. The reality is that Paris has become quite dirty, that uh, there's a kind of civil war in the streets between the e-scooters, thousands, thousands of them, um, and uh, uh, bicycle lanes. It's great stuff, but uh, it's not very well organized. So uh, between cars and cyclists and e-scooters, it's been, you know, mayhem. So uh, there's an element of this, I think. The e-scooters are driving the Parisian from their city. Agnès Paris, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. (laughs) 
Now, the conflict in Ukraine and the soured relations between Russia and the EU have opened old wounds in European cities with close cultural ties to Moscow. One of these is the Estonian city of Nava, where the majority of the population is Russian-speaking and around a third of residents hold Russian citizenship. Well, Monocle's correspondent Petri Butzov visited Nava to get a better sense of the city's history and its ambiguous identity. The icy waters of the Narva River, which form both a natural and administrative border between Russia and Estonia, and therefore also the European Union and NATO, serve as a perfect metaphor for relations between the two states. And yet, for the 60,000 or so citizens of the border town to which the river gives its name, the bridge crossing it has always been a more potent symbol. 96% of Narva's population are Russian-speaking, and many locals especially those of older generations, feel a close affinity to the neighboring Russia. This has not gone unnoticed in the Kremlin. Russia's President Vladimir Putin, in his speech in June last year, referred to Narva as historically belonging to Russia. This raised quite a few eyebrows in Estonia, which is one of the staunchest of NATO allies and among the most vocal critics of Putin's Russia. But what is Narva? And how did it emerge as the most Russian city outside of Russia? Locating only a three-hour drive from Estonia's capital Tallinn, Narva looks everything but Estonian. Its architecture is markedly different from the chocolate box buildings of the Estonian capital. Grey Soviet-era apartment blocks line the streets with many shop signs and billboards being in both Estonia and Russia. There are a handful of ethnic Estonians living in Narva, but they have had to adapt. Speaking and understanding Russian is a must here. This is rooted in the city's troubled past. During the Soviet occupation of Narva in the 20th century, tens of thousands of Russians moved to Narva to work in its huge Soviet factories. At the same time, Narva's Estonian population, who had escaped the war-torn city during the Second World War, were not allowed to return. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Estonia became independent again and the Soviet citizens of Narva were left without a nationality. This is a problem that persists to this day. Because of its Russian identity, many Estonians have historically looked down on Narva. Such attitudes had started to change until Moscow's invasion of Ukraine opened old wounds. Many people living in Narva, roughly a third of whom hold Russian citizenship, only get their news from Russian television, which churns out misinformation about the war. Narva's Baroque City Hall, one of the few buildings that survived the 1941 German invasion, is a symbol of Tallinn's rule. But it is also a potent reminder of how alone the Estonian government is in Narva. Government's initiative, such as the removal of Soviet-era monuments and street names, have been met with staunch opposition among the locals. Last summer, a decision was made to remove a Cold War tank monument. For many locals, these monuments are an important part of their identity. For others, they are a painful reminder of Soviet occupation. There were demonstrations against tank removal, but thankfully none turned violent, and over the course of the past year, as fears of a wider European conflict have grown, Narvan's public mood has turned pretty decisively against the war. After Russia attacked Ukraine, people realized that they need to choose their side. Many Narvans gave away their Russian passports. 
Many in the city fear that a possible conflict between Russia and Estonia would make them pawns in a wider power struggle between the East and the West. Yet Russia has made no such threats despite Putin's hardline rhetoric. To attack Estonia would be to attack NATO, many of whose troops are, in fact, stationed not far from Narva. As the time passes, old enmities fade. Estonian, Russian and English conversation fills the newly opened popular Valga Kurvitz Café. For the young people in Narva, the Soviet past is not a burden. They speak Russian, but their identity is not only Estonian, but European. And then there's culture. It is not only the Estonian government that is working to integrate Narva with the rest of the country. Like is so often the case, art is a potent tool of mending broken relationships. The Krayenholm's textile factory, once the largest of its kind in Europe, stands abandoned on the outskirts of Narva. In the summer, it plays host to numerous music festivals, artist residencies and theatre performances. The symbolism of tens of thousands of people from all over Estonia flocking to this old Soviet-era factory in Narva is lost on no one. And the locals too, who were hesitant at first, have started to discover the Estonian culture through art. On its current trajectory, Narva's future, like that of Estonia, is anchored in the West. But many are afraid that Russia might take advantage of any schisms in the town as a pretext to invade, such as was the case in Ukraine. If that ever were to happen, the cohesion of Narva's residents would be severely tested. For Monocle in Narva, I'm Petri Burtsov. My thanks to Petri Burtsov for that in Estonia. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. Finally, on today's programme, let's talk television with the critic and broadcaster Scott Bryan. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Good to have you with us. In a moment, I know we're going to talk about the thing that you're desperately excited about, which was Happy Valley. <laughs> of course. Which is a, a, a British television programme which has sort of floored the population um, for, for the best part of about six or seven years now. But first, let's head to Disney first. Uh, the New York Times is reporting the fact that, that the, uh, the quarterly earnings are coming out for Disney and there's quite a performance that needs to be to, to be made by the, the chief executive. Yes, I mean, there's been, of course, you know, a lot of change happening within Disney. Bob Iger sensationally coming back as chief um, executive not long after Bob Shapek sensationally left. And I think Disney is in a quite an exposing position because, of course, there's been COVID, which has affected its theme parks, and there's been a massive change in its streaming businesses. And I think there's a lot of concern that whilst it's traditional TV business, um, which in the US consists of channels such as ABC, ESPN, Disney Channel, FX and so forth, have been doing well. It's been kind of the rise of Disney Plus, um, which has been swallowing up a lot of consumers, but also still not really making anywhere near as much money as they would hope, because making streaming um, services and investing in those programs is prohibitively expensive. So I think there's the idea, this concern that they need to go and cut costs, some people say. Some other people say that they need to sort of double down and keep spending money on their streaming business when when Netflix is uh, continuing to spend much more on theirs. So I think this is the first indication of um, figures about whether Bob Iger's plan, a 
a guy who's sort of really a big force in, in Hollywood um, uh, has, of course, been responsible for, for huge changes such as um, having Marvel join the Disney biz- business. I, I guess there'll be sort of a lot of concerns about whether his plans are really playing off. It's an astonishing story, actually, that, that all roads lead to this moment, don't they? Because um, the New York Times is reporting that Mr Iger basically has to face both Wall Street and Hollywood on Wednesday and say, this is my plan. Yes, and I think it's also the case that he is a person who is always a creative mind first, a, a sort of a businessman sort of second. And I think that's the, the difficulty is trying to sort of say, look, all the investments I'm making, all the changes I'm making might make Disney less profitable in the long run, in in the short run. But in the long run, I mean, the difficulty if we cut costs too much, then what makes Disney stand out compared to every other business out there? I mean, they are known, Disney, for making big creative decisions, doing things that are unexpected, and of course, having a warm heartedness and seem to be spending much more on content than their rivals. So it's it's trying to sort of say, I'm not being too reckless. And I think also Disney has to remain distinctive at a time when it can be very tempting to make your business sort of cut costs in a dramatic way and seem like everything else. And I guess also Disney points to the to the wider economy. How well Disney performs gives an indication about how well everyone else is performing and that gives an indication about how the wider economy is also performing too. They are very much the market leader. The bellwether of everything. Uh, Scott, you have, dare I say it sadly, one minute to tell us about <laughs> Happy Valley and why it is something which is, well, it's knocked us all here in the UK for six. Um, how important a television event has this been? I mean, it has been really important. I mean, it got 7.5 million viewers for the BBC on Sunday evening, which is quite significant. I mean, it stands out because this is a show that has only had three series over a 10-year period, which is quite rare. You know, a lot of shows only come for three quick series on three successive years and then levers. But it's been because of Sally Wainwright's genius plotting, um, focusing on characters, and just this immense story that had such high expectation going into the final episode on Sunday night. Won't reveal any spoilers, but somehow managed to exceed them with just electrifying performances. And I think for me, the appeal is not only just how it had uh, you know, millions of us watching at the same time on linear TV in an age of streaming, but also like pacing yourself with your plotting. Like if you've got a brilliant story, viewers can really stick around for nearly a decade to watch it all. Scott Bryan, thank you so much for joining us on the line. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to our producers, Christy O'Grady, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers were Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parminchian. And our studio manager was Christy O'Grady. And thanks also to all my guests. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. And The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.